0: Okay. Good morning, today with Parshas Vayeshev we begin what is the longest running story in the entire Torah And that is of course the story of Yosef and his brothers And uh, the impact on Yaakov and so on and so forth So we uh, begin as we always do our overview of the Parsha And then we will analyze uh, one of the sections more in depth By looking at the commentaries of the Meforshim, together So page 198 in the Artscroll Stone Chumash begins Parshas Vayeshev and uh, of course, we pick up where we left off last week, which is the um, the relationship or the uh, the continuity from Yaakov in terms of his uh, in terms of his children. Yaakov Aviv sat, resided, settled in the land. Rashi tells us, Yaakov le'shev b'shalva. Yaakov wanted something that's very appealing to all of us. He wanted to sit b'shalva tranquility, peace, his life had been riddled by challenge, by conflict, by hardship. And so Yaakov wanted one thing, BK Yaakov Bishalva, he just wanted to be able to retire to Boca and play Mahjong and shuffleboard and learn and go to classes and eat the early bird dinner and go to bed. But no, God had other plans for him. God had other plans for him because God says that tzaddikim, righteous in this world, there's no rest. There's no rest for the weary. And what's the idea is that complacency or apathy or feeling one has arrived they're done they've concluded they're finished there's no room for the righteous need to be ambitious throughout their lives the righteous need to feel unsettled because it's that feeling of unsettlement that really pushes that really motivates um, growth, change that really precipitates progress so though Yaakov wanted to rest, he felt he had earned it, God had other plans, and boy did God have other plans, because as we begin the story, we know the continued hardship and aggravation that Yaakov endures. So the Torah begins, the parasha begins by telling us about Yosef, who at the age of 17 was a shepherd, with his brothers, that um, he would speak... Yosef is dibasam vihem Yosef reported negatively about his brothers he was the tattletale he was the one who filled in the father about everything that was going on whether it was accurate whether his information was inaccurate there's a big discussion among the commentaries how could Yosef engage in lashon was it really for their own good what he reported was it true was it not true Rashi quotes he saw them eat ever manachai he saw them eating the limb of a live animal which is forbidden to B'nai Noach even if it's one of the Noahide laws and he saw them doing other things so the super commentaries on Rashi explain no, he, he thought he saw them doing that but really they were eating after they had shechted an animal an animal undergoes something called Pirkus which means it um, the death rows. if you've ever seen a chicken shechted I remember still I still am traumatized by 7th grade Yavne Academy, Paramus, New Jersey when a shecht came in and shechted a chicken And we watched it run around the parking lot literally without its head. Because even after the head is removed, there are the the muscle the reactions. It continues for a little while. Then we then we salted chickens and then I didn't eat chicken for a year. At least a year. (laughs) I still have trouble eating chicken. Yeah, that was that was supposed to be educational for us, as if we would ever salt chickens again in our lives. Uh, but anyway um, In any case uh, So what Yosef really witnessed Was his brothers were eating from the chicken After the proper shechita was done But they were still moving The chickens, not the brothers So he concluded that they were eating Eber Menachai erroneously And that's what he reported That's a discussion Not for now so Yisrael Yaakov loved Yosef more than the other brothers Ki ben hulo because Yosef was his Ben Zakunin. What does Ben Zakunin mean? The child of his old age. He was the youngest at this time. Binyamin had not yet been born. He was the, at, when, ya, when Yosef was born, Yosef was the, the youngest of the time. He therefore made him a ketonis Pasim. He made him a special multicolored coat, as we all know and could sing about. But I will spare you. So the parsha uh, then goes on that the brothers, this incited jealousy. This incited jealousy. The brothers were jealous. Why is Yosef being favored? Why does Yosef have such preferential treatment? It's not right. It was exacerbated by Yosef having these dreams in which his brothers and even his father were bowing down to him. And uh, that aggravated the brothers even further, incited even greater jealousy from them. The two dreams, the mistake was, not everything you dream do you need to share. Not everything you want to share do you need to share with the subjects of the dream. With your brothers, with the obvious interpretations that there would be. In any case, the uh, parsha continues that the brothers go off to um, shepherd Yaakov's flock and they, uh, they seem to disappear. Ya- Yo- Yaakov has concern about his sons. So therefore he sends Yosef. Why did Yaakov have concerns? It occurred to me, if you look, we're on page 202. <speaking in Hebrew> The brothers went to shepherd the flock of their father where? Why might the father have been concerned? Because, because if you remember last week's Pasha, they didn't exactly make good friends in Shechem. Right? Levi and Shimon in defense of their sister Dina's honor and dignity annihilated, decimated the, the people of Shechem. So now for whatever reason, the brothers are going to watch the flock in, she- in Shechem. So maybe Yaakov was a little concerned how they're doing and sends Yosef after them which again was a questionable judgment to send Yosef considering he was familiar with the animosity that existed between the jealousy between Yosef and the, and the brothers Yosef goes to look for him he can't find him the uh, Rashi quotes this is praiseworthy of Yosef many other people would have turned back you know there's two ways to do a mission I always tell this to my children some of the people you work with you have to say it sometimes that you ask someone to do something and they hit a legitimate roadblock They hit a legitimate wall. So they, you know, You said, could you get in touch with so-and-so? They said, I called and I left a message. It's two weeks later. Did you ever take care of that thing? Well, I called and I left a message I never heard back. No, no, but I asked you to take care of it. If you didn't hear back, you should have followed up with them. You should have called a second time. You should have let me know. I'm having trouble getting in touch with them. You can't. Yosef could have legitimately gone home. Father sent him to look for the brothers. He walked around Dol He looked for the brothers. He couldn't find the brothers. But what did he do? He found someone and he could have gone home and said, Look, I did the best. I couldn't find them. But he wasn't satisfied by leaving a message. He continued to pursue until he could find them. He asked this man, angel the man, where his brothers were because he wanted to find them. So the man said I heard they went to Sinai to Dosan So Yosef pursued His brothers To go after them There And when they saw Yosef coming he oh, Here comes the dreamer Here comes our younger brother Who thinks he's greater than us With the superiority complex Here comes the dreamer Who feels the need To share his Ridiculous fantasies with us About his Superiority over us What should we do? So the first thing they said Is let's kill him Let's kill him We'll throw him in the pit and let's see what will be with his dreams. Let's see what will happen with his dreams. All of his big dreams. All of his big aspirations. Let's kill him now. And we'll, with, the, with him, we'll kill the dreams. Ruvain heard and interceded on his brother's behalf. said, no, no, no. Let's not kill him. That would be wrong. Let's throw him in the pit. We'll throw him in the pit. And in fact, that's exactly what they do. They remove his coat. They throw him in the pit. The pit didn't have water. Rashi, of course, quotes the famous Gemara Shabas. Shabbos didn't have water but it did have snakes and scorpions to tell us that snakes and scorpions it's impossible to survive we have a tradition we have a chazaka that if a person is in a pit with snakes and scorpions they will we can all but assume that they were killed and yet Yosef survives because there is some divine protection and a divine plan that is unfolding here they throw him in the pit and they're to me it's one of the most incredible psukim in the story right let's kill him no, Ruvain says, let's not kill him. How can we ever justify that? How will, we, how will we live with ourselves if we kill him? Let's throw him in the pit. He'll rot in the pit. We won't actively have killed him. He'll die passively. And, uh, and then uh, that's the plan. What happens next? Someone says, anyone bring the pita and hummus? Time for lunch. There's a pizza store. Shawarma, anybody? What happens next? The Sferno points out in that Pasuk how casual they were with the dismissal of their brother, how comfortable they were with the fact that their brother was left to die. Then what do they do immediately? They're not traumatized. It's not that they go home and they can't sleep for a night. Their conscience kicks in. They don't even know what to say to one another. They're trembling from what they just did. No! (laughs) They sit down to eat bread. Of course, they see the band of Yishma'elim and they say, you know what Yehuda says? No, no, no. Let's not leave him in the pit even then he's going to die how will we live with ourselves let's sell him he'll be alive but he'll be away from us we won't have to feel guilty that we've killed him but we won't have to deal with him and his dreams any longer so indeed that's exactly what happens Reuven returns to the pit he sees Yosef's not there he tears his garments he returns to his brothers and he says so what do they do I think it's fascinating the text they didn't tell him what happened anyone else noticed that? Ruvain comes back. He was not with them when the decision was made to retrieve Yosef from the pit and to sell him instead. Ruvain sees an empty pit and concludes his brother is dead and bemoans it to the brothers who say, you're right, let's dip the coat in blood. When we dip the coat in blood, our father will believe that he was murdered. He was killed by an animal. What did they fail to tell Ruvain? We sold him. They don't update Ruvain on what happened in his absence. But in any case, it's reported to Yaakov. He tears his garment. He mourns many years. And uh, the brothers get up. They try to comfort the father. But he's simply uh, inconsolable. And uh, Yosef is sold to Mitzrayim. Ultimately, sukkim so go back and forth between identifying these merchants as Yishma'elim, Arabs, or, or uh, back and forth as Midanim, as uh, Midnight's, Which are they, Rashi says, he was sold multiple times. He kept getting resold on the open market until ultimately he made his way down to Mitzrayim where he was purchased by Potiphar who was an aide to Paro, who was the Sar He is the chief butcher in the kitchen of Paro, the king of Egypt. The king of uh, Egypt. We see from here, I've shared this before, Rabbeinu Manoach, one of the commentaries in the Rambam writes, When do we recall this episode? of the sale of Yosef and the dipping of the coat in the blood and the report to the father that he was dead Pesach night where on Pesach night do we commemorate this when do we dip we dip the karpas in the salt water says Rabbeinu Manoach the word karpas comes from ketonet pasim ksonas pasim pasim karpas it's the same word And when we sit down Pesach night and commemorate our exodus from Mitzrayim, we begin by remembering what brought us there to begin with. And how did we descend? Why did we end up in Mitzrayim to begin with? Senes chinam, baseless hatred, the brothers in Yosef. We begin the Seder with a pledge, with an affirmation, not to repeat the very behavior that landed us into slavery to begin with. And how do we recall it? By eating the karpas, which is commemorative of the Ksonus Pasim. And what do we do with the Karpas. We dip it, just like the brothers dipped the coat into blood. We dip it into the salt water, the tears of the pain and the anguish of when we remember what was the result of baseless hatred. When we dismiss and we judge and we um, are jealous and envious of one another, that is the result. Rashi right. said that not only the brothers want to kill him, but they felt they had an obligation. To what what kind of obligation kills Where which are you? you pointing what, to? On, on, in the English, on the which page, On page 203 two on the bottom. Yeah. the Reuven safety Yosef from the plot to kill him? The brothers concluded they had had a right and even an obligation to kill. At the very bottom of two o three. Uh, which pasuk are you on? Uh, oh, they had a right and even they, an obligation. Yeah. Well, what kind of obligation? Maybe because he was reporting them, so they felt their lives were endangered by his reporting them and uh, inaccurately, and therefore... He's a ro- but he, maybe he's a thief, ro- oh. Right. By his reporting negatively about them, Dave. and perhaps inaccurately, they might suffer consequences. So in an effort to protect themselves, they felt, entitled. They, had, they, had to they felt entitled to get rid of him. Yeah. Now there's a lot of questions on this opening section. We're not going to delve into it today. But to understand, these are Yaakov's sons. This is not Esav and Yishmael. These are Yaakov's sons who are the Shiv Ka. These are the, the heads, these are the, not the heads of the tribes, these are the tribes. These are the namesakes of the tribes. They grow up in Yaakov's home. They see righteousness. They see justice. They see kindness. They see caring. They see a relationship with God, a virtue of nobility. And this is the way they react? So you're jealous. So he's missed. So he's favored. So you're sick of hearing about his dreams. Isn't there a better solution? How could it be that they were prepared They even entertained the possibility of killing him? And how could it be that they sold him and did that to their father? Forget the cruelty displayed to Yosef. What about the cruelty they showed their father? How could it be? It's a very, very important question. And the truth is, I would say, a common theme of the Parsha, see the Pesukim we're going to study today, is, is trying to understand beyond the superficial and to defend how these noble, virtuous of our patriarch could have behaved in a way that seems to us like a soap opera seems to us so so horrible so corrupt the episode of Yehuda and Tamar that Yosef was tempted by the seductress Eshis Potiphar and only at the last minute did he overcome the urge there's a very human quality to Parshas Vayeshev jealousy lust desire temptation envy, honor, there are many, many very human qualities which can, can create questions or can also inspire. But these are our role models, but to a certain degree, they in fact were very human. Rav Aaron Salavitchik Satsal, has in his book called, what's his book called? The Mind and the Heart, the heart and the... I forgot the name of his book at the moment. Rav Aaron has a chapter about the battle between Yosef and the brothers was a question of philosophy. Yosef versus Yehuda was different approaches to life. And, and it wasn't simply jealousy and envy and honor, but it was really about the continuity from Yaakov. What would Judaism look like? It was a struggle and a debate, um, philosophically, about what Yahadus would be about. And that's why each felt entitled to, to react so harshly the way that the brothers treated Yosef, they felt that his philosophy undermined and threatened the continuity of the legacy of their father and grandfather and great-grandfather Avraham. Whereas Yosef felt that he was the one whose philosophy represented the true and accurate continuity and that he needed to do whatever was necessary and his dreams supported his philosophy. What exactly was that debate philosophically? We'll have to leave for another time. But the next section that continues is the one we're going to delve into specifically. And that is the episode of Yehuda and Tamar. Um, so... The world today, Correct, different groups within Judaism today too. We have the notion of dismissing one another, judging one another, the debate about one another. And, and like Yaakov, like uh, rather Yehuda and Yosef, like the brothers and Yosef, each one feels that the other's philosophy threatens the authentic orthodoxy do they, don't they? Does it mean that anyone who wants to call themselves orthodox is orthodox, even if they have radical different approaches? These are very complicated questions of when you draw boundaries and what are the boundaries and how do you react to someone who you think is outside of those boundaries. And so the the theme of Parshas Vayeshev is as alive today as it ever was. Have we as a people learned the lessons? That's a big question. Unfortunately, sadly, in many ways, it seems that we haven't. Um, But in any case, the uh, episode of Yehuda and Tamar is next. Those are the psukim we're going to go through more in depth in a moment. It's really unusual. What's it doing there? smack in the middle of the story of Yosef being sold, which should continue with Yosef being in the house of Potiphar is the episode of Yehuda and Tamar why is it here, does it belong here isn't it the right? Is it in the right place those are some of the things we're going to look at in a moment but Yosef then finds himself in the house of Potiphar Mrs. Potiphar is a very beautiful woman, she's very attracted to Yosef um, Yosef really has nothing to lose, every time I read this section it reminds me Yosef had no consequences. He's separated from his father, separated from his family, separated from his value system. What, what did Yosef have to lose by sleeping with Mrs. Potiphar? He's by himself. The world has mistreated him, has wronged him, he's hurt, he's lonely, he's in pain. What did he have to lose? Okay, so she's married, but she's coming on to him and she's come on to him many countless times, and Potiphar probably wasn't the most honorable man. Maybe he deserved it. What did Yosef have to lose? And yet he found what can only be described as the superhuman strength to withstand the seduction. And in the last moment he walks away, she grabs his cloak, and therefore she has evidence. She screams, as many have in the past. When, uh, when she's rejected, she turns the table and says that he, in fact, tried to come on to her. And the consequences for Yosef are that he's thrown into, into prison. In prison, he hears the dreams of these two individuals: the Sarah Tabachim and the Sara Ofim the uh, the baker and the wine and the uh, wine bear. And he hears the dreams, and that's how the parsha and that's how the parsha ends. The medrash actually tells us that when the Jewish people stood at the sea, the Egyptians pursuing them in the back and the sea in front of them, caught between the proverbial rock and a hard place, nowhere to go so in what merit did the sea split says the Yosef. in the merit of the coffin of Yosef they were carrying the bones of Yosef as he had made his brother's promise that when they would leave Egypt they would carry his bones so in the merit of the bones of Yosef the sea split says the Medrash how do I know that because if you look at the verse in our Parsha, it says page 216 where'd that pasuk go Tesavah 15, chapter 39, verse 15. When Yosef is about to give in to the urge to be with the wife of Potiphar, the house is right, and Rashi builds up the drama. I'm not going to, because I would blush too much if I described it to you. But the house is empty. Isha's Potiphar puts on her her or takes off or whatever she does but she, she really tells uh, Yosef no one's home nobody's coming home we're all alone you keep turning me down but this is the chance she, she does everything from, from lighting the candles to putting on the soft music to creating the environment that she's going to get Yosef and Yosef is about to give in to that urge has nothing to lose and why not? And what happens? So she claims that when he overcame his urge, when he heard my scream, because I rejected him, because she turned the tables, so he ran, and that's why I'm holding his garment, I grabbed it. And he ran. He fled. Vayanas, where else do we see that word, says the Medrash? What do we read in Az Yashir? So the, the sea, Vayanas, fled, when it split. It says the Medrash it's not a coincidence that same word, Vayanas, appears in both places. It's in the merit of Yosef that the sea split. So what does that mean? Just a cute play on words, Vayanas is in both places. What's the intrinsic connection between Yosef, the merit of Joseph, and the sea splitting? So I want some magnificent interpretation. I don't remember by whom I apologize. But the interpretation is, the sea splitting is supernatural. It's natural for the sea to remain one. Water molecules stick together. For the sea to split, is nothing short of supernatural. So God performed something supernatural. Why? In the merit of Joseph, of Yosef. Because Yosef had done something supernatural. The natural thing would be to give in to one's urge. The natural thing would be to fail the test and for him to have slept with the wife of Potiphar. What Yosef tapped into was nothing short of the capacity to be supernatural, to transcend the natural, to transcend the natural urge. And therefore it's in the merit of Yosef that the sea split. Meaning, in the merit of the one who was able to transcend the natural and to express something supernatural, the natural was transcended and God expressed something supernatural by splitting the sea. So what Yosef exhibited in this story was something which was absolutely incredible. Okay, so that's an overview of the parsha. Let's go back to the psukim that I want to look at, which are not short. So we're going to go through the psukim very quickly, which will give us the outline of the story. And then we'll delve in a little bit closer. And that is the episode of the story of Yehuda Vitamar. Now this is the story, if you don't know it well, it's because in school they skipped it. Every Jewish school in the country skips this story. Right? And, you know, you go over the parsha with your kids and they say, they're not exactly, you know, it's very, it's, it's, it's fantastic to hear how the teacher described the story to the group of first graders, or kindergartners, or fourth graders. You know, what happened? What did you, who to do with Tamar exactly? You know, he made her his wife. Anyway, so, so you probably haven't studied it in depth before, unless you've taken the time to, because if you're relying on your Jewish education, it was likely skipped over. So we begin Perak Lamed Chapter 37 is the beginning of this story. We're going to read the entire chapter together, and then we'll go back and look at the Mefarshim and look at some questions. But first we have to do the overview of the entire story. I'm sorry chapter 38 I apologize chapter 38 I'm glad everybody's paying attention Pasigal Perak Lamanches Pasigal chapter 38 verse 1 It was at that time it was at what time we'll have to come back to that it was at that time what time it's an unusual way to introduce the story just start the story It was at that time Yehuda went down He descended from his brothers What does that mean? Geographically? Topographically? He descended Were they on a mountain? What does it mean That he left his brothers? And he went He went towards Adulami Ushmohira Vayasham Yehuda Bas'ish Ushmo Shua. Yehuda there Sees the daughter Of a prominent merchant Interesting Is that what Kanani means? Merchant? No What does Kanani man Mean? A person from? Canaan. Canaan. Why does our article translate it as merchant? Because it's relying on commentaries who say, Canaan in this context doesn't mean a citizen of Canaan. Why could it not mean that? Why could it not mean that? What do we see when Avram sends Eliezer? What do we see when Yitzchak and Rivka send Yaakov? What must it be when Yaakov's son Yehuda is looking for a wife? What were they all warned? Do not marry a woman from? Canaan. Canaan have in their DNA something immoral, corrupt, unethical, something that is so inconsistent and incompatible with Judaism that they were instructed not to marry a woman from Canaan. So it can't mean that Yehuda sees a man from Canaan and wants to marry the daughter. So therefore many Mephoshim explain in this context Canaan is a merchant. Although others explain, no, it ended. Yaakov's sons were allowed to. That Yitzchak did not want to marry someone from Canaan, and Yaakov was sent away to Lava not to marry someone from Canaan, but now Yaakov's sons, i.e., Yehuda, the fourth son of Yaakov, was allowed to marry. So there's debate among the commentaries. Artsgirl clearly takes a position with their translation. Vatar, Vatelet Ben. What? Didn't go to who? There, Yehuda saw the daughter of Canaan, whose name was Shua, and he married her. And he consorted with her. They didn't just go to Starbucks. Okay, forget why he went. My point is that the, they were instructed not to marry a woman from Canaan. That sounds like the kid who goes to college and says, I didn't go to marry the non Jew. I just was in the lab with her and fell in love with her. What do you want from me now? If they were indeed instructed not to marry a woman from Canaan, who cares why he went? It was off limits. So again, you have this debate where Yaakov was that next generation, the fourth generation, or the third down from Avram, were they too instructed. But in any case, they have a son, his name is Er, and they had a second son, Vatar, Vatikrashmo, Onan, his second son's name is Onan. Vatozavod, Vatilet, Ben, a third son, Vatikrashmo, Shelah. You'll notice we don't name our kids. Anyone know any heirs or Onans or Shelahs walking around? We'll get into Why? In a moment. There's a good reason. <laughs> when she gave birth to the third son, Shela, it was in Chziv when she gave birth to him. So now Yehuda found a daughter in law for his son, Ushma Tamar. Er. We do have the name Tamar. I have a little Tamar. heir <laughs> Yehuda's oldest son, disappointed God and he died. God didn't have a a long rope. He uh, didn't have a lot of chances. Air dies. What did he do wrong? The Torah doesn't say explicitly. We'll see. So Yehuda turns to his second son Ona and says, "You need to marry your sister-in-law." Why? we're going to see the Ramban here. But this is the origin of Yibum, Love marriage, the idea of continuing your brother's name. Via which we'll see, I'll just give you a little preview. The Ramban is going to say this is the introduction to the Jewish concept of reincarnation. You will be able to bring back your brother's soul by sleeping with your sister-in-law and producing a child. That child's soul will be the reincarnation of your brother so that your brother will not be lost to us forever. You can bring him back through reincarnation. The Sanzerah le'achav. I'm sorry. Pasuk test. "Vayida onan ki lo hazara." Onan knew for not. Let's see how does the article translate this because the words are complicated. We're gonna have to see them before Hashem He knew that the seed would not be his. So it was that whenever he would consort with his wife, he would let it go to waste on the ground, so as not to provide offspring for his brother. Right? Lo lo hazara. Now what does that mean? It would not be his. Whose would it be? If he is the one who is engaging in intimacy with the woman, he is impregnating her, of course the resulting child will be his. What what does it mean, the Torah? Onan knew that even though he was the one consorting with Tamar, that it would not be his. So what did he do? He wasted his seed, which we know is practically a cardinal offense. Gemara Nida tells us one is liable for death penalty, Mide Shamayim, that wasting one's seed means to. Not for the reason the Catholics believe. It's not that we believe that the seed is life. Because we believe, for example, in stem cell research, we believe it is permissible to um, extract the stem cells for scientific purposes, even though it means essentially killing the um, embryo or pre-embryo. Because in Judaism, we don't believe that that's defined as life. It's only defined as life when it's defined as potential life. And it's only forbidden when you have a potential life in a environment which will lead to life, so abortion is prohibited, because the pre or fetus in the environment of a uterus which will lead to life, to abort that, that's forbidden. According to some, it's murder. According to some, it's chavala. This is a whole class unto itself. But we don't believe that a seed is life. We don't believe sperm is life. That's why we believe it's potential life, and to destroy potential is also something which is uh, is also something which is terribly destructive forget to the body but is self-destructive to the spirit anyway that's what he engaged in he engaged in intercourse with her but he would conclude outside of her and wasted his seed because he didn't want her to become pregnant we'll see why this too was terrible again God did not have a lot of patience and Onan dies as well so Yehuda says to Tamar third time is a charm why don't you go home Wait back in your father's house. Relax. Take it easy. Lie by the pool. And when my third son Shayla grows old enough, then we'll try again. So Yehuda says, Remain, go back to your father's house. When my son Shayla grows up, he thought maybe he'll die like his brothers. He wasn't really honest with Tamar. He was fearful that Tamar had the status of what we call in Halacha a Katlanis. What's a Katlanis? A woman who kills two husbands should not marry a third. Meaning that, by the way, what I mean by kills is not just that they live together, not just that she's, you know, difficult to him, but it means in the context of intimacy, that there's something about their um, chemistry that is dangerous. So that woman, one should not marry that woman. So Yehuda felt she has the status of a katlanis. It would be dangerous for Sheila, but instead of being forthright and honest, says, wait till Sheila grows up. You go home to your father's house and sit tight, wait till Sheila grows up. But the truth is, Yehuda was fearful that Tamar had already killed, in Yehuda's interpretation, two of his sons. He's not interested in finding out about the third. So the days pass, and Yehuda's wife dies. So Yehuda was consoled, meaning he was he had been comforted by the loss of his wife, and he went up to see what was happening with those who shear his sheep. He and his Adulamite friend Khira, who we saw, who was his father in law, they went to. I'm sorry, not his father in law. That was his friend at the beginning of the parak. They went to Timna. it was told to Tamar your father-in-law is ascending to Timnah in order to in order to shear his sheep so Tamar who had been still walking around inconsolable, miserable, sad the loss of her two husbands changes out of her black dreary, drabby mourning clothing she changes her clothing and she puts on a head covering a veil and sits at the entrance to Timnah where Yehuda and his buddy are coming Because <clears throat> she realized, Sheila's come of age, Sheila's old enough to get married and you know what, my father-in-law has no, has no uh, intent, has no plan on, on giving me Shayla. So she says to herself, how am I going to either reincarnate or simply continue my first husband's or second husband's name? How am I going to have a child? Where's my continuity going to come from? And she therefore justifies the following scheme. Yehuda Yehuda sees her on the side of the road and he thinks that she is a... innkeeper. No, I'm just joking. That's what they teach in... Right? By the way, that is, that is one of the interpretations. For example, you have the same problem when you learn Shoftim and you get to the story of Rachav. The teachers say, oh, she was an innkeeper. Which is some of the zona from Mizonos. Zona comes from the same as Mizonos Can come from the, Which means the innkeeper, the one who provides question is what, is, what service is she providing exactly? So, again, it depends if you're talking to the third graders or a group of adults I'm assuming that you can handle it What does Arts Girl say? Harlot Okay, so even, even Arts Girl can't avoid the translation here So Yehuda sees her and he thinks that she is a harlot Ki He doesn't recognize her as his daughter-in-law Because her face is covered. So he propositions her. How much for your services? I'd like to spend the evening together. Because he didn't know it was his daughter-in-law. So she now negotiates. Tell me, what are you willing to pay? So he says, I'll just send you a kid... From my goats, I have my animals, they're not with me right now. I'll wire you some money, I'll send you a goat later. She is a shrewd businesswoman negotiator. She says, nice, emtiten e'ravon shall But since you can't pay me right now, I want some collateral. Leave me collateral, leave me a deposit until you can send me my compensation. So he said, what would you like as... Collateral. But Thomas, she said three things. Fascinating. We'll see the Kliakar Why three? Why not one? And why specifically these three? What did she want? Chosamcha, your seal, your signet. Upsilecha, and your garment. Umatcha and your walking stick, your staff. But and I guess he, she was really beautiful. He was really interested. He didn't negotiate and said, I'll give you two or three or one or three. He says, No problem. Here's all three. Let's get started. And he must have been very virile, she was very fertile, and the evening concluded with her becoming pregnant. She quickly goes back and changes back, takes the veil off, reveals her face, not when she's with Yehuda. She goes back home, changes back into her uniform of mourning. She, Yehuda, I'm sorry, goes and now it's time to Yehuda acts very honorably We'll see for the Rambam That's the purpose of the story Really the Rambam turns the whole thing on its head Very different than the way we've classically studied this But the Rambam says Yehuda doesn't act dishonorably Yehuda acts incredibly honorably Why? Yehuda, if he was dishonorable Could have cheated her out Could have never paid up Could have forfeited his items What does he do? He quickly goes to pay up His Adulami friend who's still with him He sends him to go find the harlot And to retrieve the three items of collateral that he had left But the buddy can't find her Why can't he find her? She changed her clothing, she went back to her father's house, she's no longer on the side of the road. So the Adulami friend asks around from the people there, Where's the Kadesha? Where's the Kadesha? What's a Kadesha? Prostitute. Why is a Kadesha called? Not the word I would have chosen for prostitute, the word Kadosh, holy. What's the connection? Torah elsewhere, by the way, in Acharei Mos, we read on Yom Kippur Mincha, when it talks about the forbidden relationships, it talks about the, the, the forbidden relations with the Kadesha. The Torah describes the Hebrew word, the biblical word for prostitute is Kadesha. Where is the holiness in the Kadesha? Interesting question. So they answer, they say, We don't know what you're talking about. There's never a prostitute that sits on the corner of Powerline power line in Palmetto. <laughs> what are you talking about? And the way you describe her? I don't know what you're talking about. So the Yadul goes back to Yehuda and says, here's your sheep, here's the kid, can't pay off because I can't find her and I can't get your collateral. Let her just keep them lest we become the laughing stock. I really sent her this kid but you couldn't find her. The Rambam also says, this is very admirable. Yehuda could have kept pursuing to find her, could have put an announcement, but he chooses not to. He forfeits his personal items rather than continue this conversation, which again on the surface looks like it is his own self-interest. It really wouldn't serve Yehuda to be known. Can you imagine some great rabbi puts on, uh, puts on uh, the message board on Facebook I'm looking for the prostitute because I haven't paid her and I still want to pay her. So if anyone knows where the prostitute is, so I could pay her and get back my down payment. So at first glance, Yehuda doesn't pursue this because of his own self-interest. You'll see, the Ramam has a very different spin on it. Three months pass. Not really three full months. Rashi tells us that most of the first month and the whole middle month and a little bit of the third month. So it's not really three full months. But three months pass. He says, you know, your daughter-in-law, the one that you sent back to her father's home and said, "Wait for Shela, your third son." Did you hear the news? She's pregnant. That prostitute, that harlot, that I won't use the woman. Did you hear? She's she's pregnant. Yehuda, and how does Yehuda respond? With indignation. Take her out, burn her at the stake. Death penalty, capital crime. <inaudible> so she's found, and she sends to her father-in-law saying, <inaudible> Hey dad, hey Abba, how are you? Long time haven't heard from you. Still waiting to hear from you about Shela. Anyway, heard you want to kill me. Just want to let you know, these three items... This ring, this signet, this symbol, this cloak, this piece of clothing, and this staff, whoever owns these things, that's the father of thy child. (laughs) Do you happen to recognize them? (laughs) Now here's another virtue of this episode. Yehuda sees them, and what could Yehuda have said? never saw them before in my life let's go find the person who they belong to in the meantime we're killing you you prostitute who became pregnant but he doesn't, what does he say? sadka mimeni you are more righteous than I because you're right I never gave you to my son Sheila I left you sitting there by yourself with your clock ticking and the inability to have children arriving what does that mean? Did he continue to remain married to her now, his former daughter-in-law? Or did he never, was he never intimate again? We'll see. A lot of things I keep saying we'll see, and we're running out of time. She was pregnant, and she had twins. When she gave birth, one stuck out its hand. They tied a string around the one who extended its hand In birth, first to say, this is the eldest. As he drew back his hand, his brother emerged and said, With what strength you asserted yourself. So she named him Paratz, the strength, vigor. And then the one whose hand had come out first came fully out second. And he named him Zarach. Who is Paratz's child? Grandchild, David Hamelach, Rus, David Hamelach. it's unbelievable. So where does David Hamelach descend from? The episode of Yehuda and Tamar. Okay, so we only have a limited amount of time and there's so many things I want to delve in with you through, but really here's the first question I want to ask you. Nobody jumped up and asked, but Rav, Rav, Nechama Allah Hashalom, asks this question. She says, do the math. Do the math. Where does the Torah position the story? In between the sale of Yosef and... Where do we pick up the story? Yosef in the house of Potiphar before he's thrown in prison and so on and so forth. How long is Yosef separated from Yaakov? The entire time that Yosef... The time between when Yosef is sold and when Yaakov arrives in Egypt. How long? How many years? 22 years. 22 years. Ask the Leibovitz, during this time, for the story to have been in chronological order, it means that in the 22 years, Yehuda would have had to have gotten married, have these three children, two of the children get married, wait for the third child to be of marriageable age, have another child with Tamar, and have grandchildren, Parat and zarach, from that union. That's a lot to happen in 22 years. In other words, that's impossible to happen in 22 years. So what does the Ibn Ezra say? Go back to the beginning of our section now. Beginning of el LaMilches. Pasuk Aleph says, the Ibn Ezra of Avram Ibn Ezra, Yosef, rak kodem himachro. This did not take place here. This story took place before Yosef was sold. This whole episode happened much earlier. While Yosef was still dreaming his dreams with his brothers, shepherds in the field, that's when Yehuda had this whole story. So says the Ibn Ezra, employing the principle that the Ibn Ezra subscribes to, a principle which is a great debate in the Torah, Is the Torah written in chronological order, or is the Torah recorded in thematic order? Does the Torah mean to relay a history, and history is meant to be communicated chronologically? Or does the Torah mean to teach us lessons? And lessons are communicated thematically, by juxtaposing different themes, even if they're not entirely in order. So says the Ibn Ezra, The Torah is recorded out of order. Really, Yehuda married, had these children, children married, he had grandchildren, all this happened? Actually, are they grandchildren technically? Are they children or grandchildren? When you have a child with your daughter-in-law, does that make it your child or your grandchild? But anyway, leaving that aside for the moment, it couldn't have happened within 22 years, so concludes the Ibn Ezra, it all happened earlier, which begs the question... What's the question? Why would the Torah record it now? If the Torah is going to violate chronology, it must be because it's trying to teach you something. So what is that lesson? Says the Ibn Ezra, <coughs> He asks the question, how could it be? He doesn't really provide, really doesn't provide the question. The Ibn Ezra and the Ralbag conclude that the story really took place prior to the sale of Yosef. So why is it inserted here? Says the Ibn Ezra, in order to to separate between the despicable behavior of Yosef's brothers in their plot against him and the dignified behavior of Yosef, in his refusal to sleep with the wife of Potiphar, to separate between the despicable behavior of the brothers and the noble, virtuous behavior of Yosef, we insert this story here. To, see, to be a, a chapter break. To be a break in the storyline. raised the question, why, why did you leave his brothers? He was leaving because he was demoted. And he lost his position. Oh. So, oh. That so that's what? how Rashi interprets it. Rashi disagrees. Now let's see Rashi. If you look at Rashi... Why is this inserted here? It doesn't seem to make sense. Even without the question of the timeline, 22 years is too short for all of that to have happened. Still, you started a story, continue the story. Why do we insert this here? They came back to the Father and they saw... How sad the anguish, the pain they had caused their father by telling him that Yosef was dead. So the Omru, they said, They turned to the brother Yehudah and said, This is your fault. Because you're the one who said, Pull him out of the pit, let's sell him. Had you said, Pull him out of the pit, let's bring him home, he learned his lesson. We would have listened. We would have gone along with it. So why is our father suffering and why are we all miserable? It's all your fault. So Yehuda had lost his distinguished position. And because Yehuda had lost his posi- distinguished position, that's what led to this story. Vayered Yehuda me'esachav. Yehuda descended from his brothers. It means he descended from his position of leadership from his, from his brothers. That's what the uh, Sforno says also. Look at the Sforno. shenimker yosef besibas Yehuda l'ashivo sika Yehuda love shnei bnei mishnahem says the Sforno it happened exactly here because Yehuda neglected to show leadership to bring his brother home he suffered the same way his father suffered that's what the Sforno says this is God's mida keneged mida Yehuda could have spared his father's pain by bringing Yosef home instead his father Yaakov felt unimaginable pain from the loss of his precious Yosef. What was the Midah Kineged Midah, the measure for measure for Yehuda? He lost, two sons. he lost two sons. You caused your father to lose one son, you've lost two sons. And they're not coming back, even though Yosef has the possibility to come back. So the Swarno believes that this is in the right place. The story took place here. Ah, how does he fit it within 22 years? How is the timeline possible? I don't know. But according to the Swarno, according to Rashi, also it happened... Here. Yes. Did, wasn't, died. So
1: sort of they...
0: Because Yitzchak understood that if God wanted it to happen this way, God did not want him to reveal it. So Yitzchak, it says, cried for the pain of his son Yaakov, but he didn't mourn because he knew Yosef was alive. But yeah. So again, the Sforno thinks it's in the appropriate place. Rashi agrees it's not in the right place. Rashi is giving the reason given that it's in the wrong place why have it? Why have it here? Why have it here? Okay, Nechama Leibovitz has an article about this, and she goes further to talk about the uh, the place, and the measure for measure, and the psukim, what is it really teaching, and so on and so forth. Right? She writes. I'll just read at the end of what she writes. This is a translation. A combined look at the commentaries and the stories of Yosef and Yehuda reveal an important common thread between the two events. Both stories must be viewed from both the human and divine perspective. Each story involves a drama in which human frailty leads to tragedy and confrontation with that frailty leads to regeneration. In both stories as well, the human drama unfolds with a larger picture that is driven by a divine plan. As such, we can understand that ultimately from these two episodes emerged the two redeemers of Israel, Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David come from these two stories. So what What's Aleib is saying is, in both stories, there's descent and then ascent. Yehuda gives in, or Yehuda mistakenly is intimate with Tamar, but then he ascends when he says, Tzadka and he admits, you are more righteous than I. Yosef descends when he's about to give in to the temptation, but then he overcomes it when he flees. Vayana sachutza, when he runs out. And because both of these individuals showed the capacity to overcome, to fall, and then to get up, therefore Mashiach, the two themes of redemption, Mashiach bin Yosef and Mashiach bin David, come specifically from these two individuals. So that's how Nahamalebitz understands this being out of out of order. Let's look some more at more Muforsham. I you have another hour to spend with me? Yes, I give up. We don't have nearly enough time. Ugh. Nearly enough time. Okay, maybe we'll try to fly through it quickly. I was going to study the Ramban with you. Bas Kanaani. Is this a real Kanaani? Not a real Kanaani? The Ramban goes through by quoting the Medra of the different Tanaim. Was she Kanaani? Not Kanaani? Were they warned on not Kanaani or not? The Ramban is an important Ramban about, um, about uh, Er, the name, Air er and Onan. What are these names? Uh, there was some prophecy. These names were prophetic in terms of their demise and what would happen, but we don't have time to go through those Rambans either. This is an important Ramban. Pasachas, what I told you about the yibum and reincarnation. Haben yikar HaShem HaMais Lashen Rashi. Ve'ein ze'emes, ki mitzvah Sator in Amar Gamken, yakum HaShem Achiv HaMais ve'loyim haShemom Yisrael ve'ina yaveh mitzvah l'ikra lovno kashem Achiv HaMais. So Rashi says Why did Yehuda want now Onan, the second son to marry Tamar To have a child They would give the same name They would name their kid Heir After the first son who died Says the Ramban Not true The idea of giving a name Doesn't mean literally the same name It means the family name And where do you see that? From the case of Rus and Boaz, where there's a case of of Yibum, but the name that was given was Ovaranat Machlon. The idea is continuity. The idea is not specifically to give the identical name. V'od says the Ramban, Why did... Onan resist most people love their brother they 're eager to continue their brother 's name why didn 't Onan embrace the opportunity to continue his brother 's name it doesn 't say that he said this out loud; it was something that he knew. That this child that would be produced wouldn't really be produced from him. (coughs) So, what does that mean? So, says the Ramban. This is a great secret. This is one of the mysteries. This is one of the mystical ideas of Torah. And it's understandable to those to whom God gave eyes to see and ears to hear the great wise ones, before the Torah was given new, there is a great accomplishment with the marriage of the brother. We don't know whether this practice preceded Yehuda or began here. This is a great secret. There was something more accomplished. Here the Ramban is somewhat enigmatic. Later, when the Torah gives us the mitzvah of Yibam, the Ramban spells it out and says reincarnation. You bring back the soul. That's what Onan had no interest in. If the result of this union would be his brother's soul coming back, it's not his continuity. Ein Lozara. This is not his child. He wasn't interested in not having a child. He was interested in his own advancement, his own progress, his own needs. And says the Ramban, that's really what's going on here because this is really the origin not only of Leveret marriage, but it's the origin of, of reincarnation. Okay, continuing. <clears throat> the Ramban also says, Vayala gozei When Yehuda goes up on the mountain to see about the shearing of the sheep, and that's when he encounters Tamar and he thinks she is a woman of the street, says the Ramban, sham tamed shishim He went, libo, I'm sorry, lisnachim libo Why did he go up there? This was part of his therapy. I think it's fascinating. He lost his wife. He was still very... He was still grieving. He would go in order to spend time with nature and with the sheep. He would... He would pay attention to the sheep, to nature, and he would forget his troubles. He was going to clear his head. But who the Tamar realized that he was still going up there to clear his head. He was still in pain. He too was lonely. He too sought companionship. He too wanted to be with another. So therefore, she understood that this was the perfect time in order to seduce him, in order to attract him. This is an important rabban on the next thing, but we're out of time. Kliakar, just a couple more things and I'll let you go. Even though there's so much more to say. Kliakar, why specifically did she tell him as collateral these three things? The sign, the signet, the the, uh, cloak, the garment, and the staff. Says the Kliyakar. Yehuda wanted something inappropriate. The Chosam says the Kliyakar is a hint to the sign on our body. Where's the sign on the body? The bris. The os bris kodesh. The sign is the sign on the body. And what was the purpose of the staff? The staff is for a shepherd, a leader. Yehuda, you were to be the progenitor of monarchy. You are to be a leader. And by doing this, you have lowered yourself from leadership. The shepherd of Israel can't be a shepherd of harlots. And why the cloak? Was a hint to tzitzis. Why do we wear tzitzis on the corners of our garment? Because you're supposed to see them and remember, don't give in to your lust and desire and temptation of your heart and of your eyes. So the Kliyaka is a long Kliyaka here, it's worth seeing, but says that Tamar was implicitly giving musr to Yehuda. You've just engaged me in this activity. Leave me your sign because you violated your bris. Leave me your cloak because you failed to see the message of tzitzis. And leave me your staff because you've compromised leadership, being a shepherd, by engaging in this activity. And he says, <laughs> that uh, this story tells us a lot about the, uh, about the failures of the Jewish people throughout the millennia. The Ram, I've been hinting to the Rambam. Rabbi Moskowitz! Yeah. I'm sorry, can you give me 60 more seconds? Yeah. I'm so sorry. The Rambam <laughs> turns this... <laughs> he's, on <his> telephone. <laughs> he's on his telephone. Okay. The Rambam turns this whole thing on its head. We begin this by not beginning to understand. How in the world, Yehuda Yaakov's son sleeping with a prostitute? What in the world is going on here? What in the world is going on here? How is it possible? So the Rambam tells us he didn't do anything wrong. Says the Rambam, the first halacha in Hilchos Isha. And so on and so forth. says the Rabbi, before the Torah was given, there was no institution of marriage. If it was two consenting individuals, it was permissible for them to be together. so Yehu Taka was lonely. his wife died he didn 't have companionship he didn 't have physical companionship, and because it was consenting, yes, he gave her these gifts, maybe that was noble, maybe that was virtuous. He wasn't paying her as a harlot. He was treating her properly. So to say, took her out for dinner, wined and dined her. Left her these, made her a promise. I'm going to share a, a kid with you, a goat with you. Here's the get collateral. So for the Rambam, first of all, Yehuda wasn't violating the halacha. Ah, we have a tradition that our patriarchs kept all the Torah even before it was given. Let's leave that aside for the moment. We have that tradition with Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov, not necessarily with Yaakov's children. But according to the Rambam, Yehuda didn't violate a law. Two consenting adults engaged in consensual relations and he treated her well. He wanted to give her something nice, a gift, to remember this lovely evening they spent together. Yehuda did nothing wrong. Not only did Yehuda technically do nothing wrong, says the Rambam in Moran not in his Mishnah Torah, even further, says the Rambam, Yehuda is really the praiseworthy one of this episode. Why? Because why does Yehuda, when he wants to collect his collateral, which he was entitled to get back, and he can't find her, there was nothing wrong with continuing to look. After all, he had done nothing wrong and he deserved his collateral. But he realized, the Rambam writes, that to speak about the fact that he had slept with this woman, to pursue finding her, put it on Facebook or, or to put it on, uh, on, uh, on the message board, it's not modest. And therefore, the Rambam praises Yehuda that in his observance of modesty and forfeiting his property, the collateral, wow, Yehuda put modesty ahead of getting back, retrieving even his own items. So the Rabbim sees in this story not only not a question on Yehuda, but really sees nobility in Yehuda. That first of all, Yehuda did nothing wrong, he treated her well. Second of all, because he was so modest and committed to the principle of modesty, he was willing to forfeit his own collateral, his personal objects, in order not to talk about this relationship. Publicly. And of course, lastly, when he recognizes, so what's the tzad kamimene, you're more righteous than I? What he realizes is that, that he had told her, my third son is going to be for you. And he didn't make good on that promise. And that's when he shows great honor by saying tzad kamimene, you're more righteous than I. You deserved for me to be honest with with you. If I had no intention of sharing my third son with you, I should have told you. And if I did have the intention, then I should have shared him with you. And the fact that I didn't, you are more righteous than I. We, by the way, are called Jews. We're called Yehudim. Because we are the offspring of Yehuda. We too have the capacity to recognize when we're wrong. We too have the capacity to admit a failure of our way where we went wrong. You can read more about this. There's an article by David Silverberg. Who is in Gush Etzion? Who talks more about the Rambam's perspective on Yehuda the Tamar? It's a very different view of the entire storyline. But uh, Tamar also displays great nobility. She—why didn't she say when they're ready to? Yehuda says, "Burn her at the stake." She should have said, "What are you talking about, you hypocrite? Yehuda, this belongs to you." So Rashi quotes, "She was willing to die rather than embarrass him." Rav Asher Weiss in his Minchas Usher asks, "She was pregnant." It's one thing she was willing to forfeit her own life. She was going to kill those two children, the twins, in order not to... What gave her the right to kill her two unborn children in order to not embarrass Yehuda? Is it really true you're allowed to die? Is it a halacha? Is it just a nice thing? So Ravasha Weiss talked about that. There was a lot more to talk about. We are very out of time. Rabbi I apologize for going late. Have a great week.